Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. Good afternoon. Actually, it is still morning, so you're right, I'm wrong. It will be afternoon in two minutes. Well, it's good to see you this morning. We are starting a new series in the book of Ruth, starting today. Absolutely one of my favorite books in the Bible. Ruth is this little four-chapter blip, and if you're flipping through your Bible, you'd be hard-pressed to find it just by flipping because it goes so quickly, but it's an absolute gem of a book, a work of art that completely overachieves for its size. Please do not judge this book by its length. It's absolutely gigantic in its scope and its vision and wisdom, and so I'm excited for these next few weeks that will be in Ruth. I want to start by giving us the 30,000-foot view uh, in 90 seconds, and then we're going to dive down and get our nose in the grass in chapter 1. But first, the the 30,000-feet view. Ruth begins with the story of a Jewish family. It's a husband named Elimelech and his wife Naomi. They got two sons. They're from Bethlehem. And at the beginning of the story, they leave Israel because there's a famine, And they go to a neighboring nation called Moab, an enemy nation, an enemy territory where there presumably isn't a famine. And after they're in Moab, just after a few years, we don't know exactly how long, the husband, Elimelech, dies. We don't know how, but he dies. Then the two sons, looking to continue the the father's name, they marry women. But since they're in Moab, they, they marry Moabite women. And, and, and now we know, later on we find out their names are Orpah and Ruth. So now you have mom, Naomi, the two sons, and then the two daughter-in-laws who are from Moab. Ten years go by, the two sons die. Again, we don't know how, but they die. And now you have Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth, the mom and the two daughter-in-laws, And as in this culture, really any culture, but especially in the ancient Near East, this is not a good situation. This is as destitute as you can get, being three widows. There are no more men in the picture. So Naomi, the matriarch, decides to do something. She decides to go back to Israel. It's the first wise move in the entire story so far. Orpah, the first daughter-in-law, decides to stay in Moab. That's her hometown. But Ruth, on the other hand, Ruth wants to go with Naomi, and and Naomi pleads with her, no, you got to stay, there's nothing for you in Israel, I can't give you another son, but but Naomi insists, as as we know, and and so they go back together, and they try together to find their way in a place of total loss and desolation, and the story goes, God meets Naomi and Ruth through a series of events that we'll get into in the following weeks, and we find out that this is a beautiful story beautiful love story, a story of redemption. It's, a, it's really a comeback story. And that, in 90 seconds, was the 30,000-foot view of the book of Ruth. And like I said, the story is only, it's only four chapters long. It's three pages in my Bible. And today we're going to focus on chapter one, which is really the story of Naomi, the mother-in-law. And, and in my opinion, the story of Naomi is just as fascinating as the story of her daughter-in-law, Ruth. 
And I want to, before we get into the text, I want to put this into your minds right now. Naomi, I, I believe we can read her as an allegory for the church in compromise. Let me say that again. I, I believe we can read Naomi's story and her character as an allegory of the church in compromise. We'll see in the story that she's brought very low, as low as you can go. And in that place, she's brought to repentance. And then she's brought back, restored to fullness from that place of repentance, not only into fullness, but back into family. And that, in a nutshell, is Naomi's story. And so with that in mind, let's jump into the text, starting in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and the man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And I'm going to stop right there. This is the time, as the text says, the time of the judges. And if you know uh, the history of Israel, the judges came before the kings. This is around 1100 B.C. King David lived around 1000 B.C. And so this is before King David, before the time of the kings. And, and the judges were appointed by God to rule over Israel. They, they would adjudicate issues and, and conflicts, national, personal, everything in between. And in this particular season, Israel is being heavily, heavily disciplined by God. It's the Deuteronomy 28 cycle. They go from obedience to disobedience. God disciplines them. They go back to obedience. They slip back into disobedience, start, you know, uh, sacrificing kids on pyres and go back to obedience because of discipline. So it's back and forth, back and forth. And the famine in this text here is God's discipline as they've been disobedient again before God. And so that's the backdrop. Verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malin and Kilian. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, the two sons, that is. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malin and Kilian died. The husbands died. So that the woman, that is Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. So what's happening here? Elimelech and Naomi, they have their sons. They leave Israel. Why? Text tells us it's to avoid the famine in Israel. They are actively, in other words, trying to escape God's discipline of the people of Israel by moving to the enemy land of Moab about 50 miles away. Now, if you and I were living next door to to Elimelech and Naomi, you know, and we see them, the, the U-Haul pull up into the driveway, and we ask them, hey, where are you guys going? And they're like, we're going to Moab. We would be dumbfounded. We would think the audacity. I mean, it's hard for us to, to actually understand how audacious this move was. The, the closest analogy I could think of was if, if, if a Jewish family living in Nazi Poland, beginning of World War II, decided they wanted to escape the persecution of the Jews in Poland by packing everything up and moving to Germany to live in the shadow of the Nazi regime. This is essentially what Elimelech and Naomi decide to do. And it's not just that Moab is enemy territory, that it is, but it also represents to Israel compromise. The entire nation of Moab is a nation of compromise before God. 
They have, they have a history, Israel and Moab. Lots of bad blood. Not only that, it would be impossible for them, for this family, to, by moving to Moab to, to properly worship God. They, they, they would be without uh, the tabernacle to worship. They'd be surrounded by idols, by, you know, Moab is famous for one thing. We're in a, lot, a couple things, but one of the things that we talk about always with Moab is that they were sacrificing babies to their gods on these super hot idols. They would lay it into the hand of this heated idol. And so, and so God is displeased with Moab, and, but, but this family moves there. They would not only be in, in a, a surrounded by idols, but they would be out of sync with the, with the pattern of worship that could only really be followed in Israel. So this is this, is, this is this family moving to Moab. While in Moab, Elimelech, the husband, the patriarch, he dies. So what happens next? The two sons wanting to continue like good Jewish boys, continue the family name. They would marry, but they're in Moab. So what do they do? They marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth, which is explicitly, strictly forbidden by the laws of Moses. But they do it anyway. They do it anyway. Now, 10 years go by, and what happens? The two sons die. Again, we don't know how, but they're gone. Things go from bad to worse to devastating. And the question I want to ask is, why would this family knowingly skirt God's discipline in this way, move to Moab, breaking laws all along the way? Why would they do this? The text gives us a clue. We need to fast forward a little bit here to, to verse 19. At this point in verse 19, Naomi and Ruth have already come back to Israel, and now they're in Bethlehem. They're surrounded by old friends, Naomi's friends. And, and this is what it says. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? You can imagine. She's been away for a couple decades. She's not doing so hot. They're like, is that you, Naomi? We've seen that in the movies, right? She says to them, do not call me Naomi. The, the, the name Naomi, it means sweetness. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Mara means bitterness. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Now that word full there in verse 21, it means abundance, complete, Lacking nothing. In other words, Elimelech and Naomi, when they left Naomi with this brilliant idea of escaping the discipline, they left with fullness. They had three cars, fully packed, travel insurance, all of it. In other words, we could assume that there was a pride. There's a pride there in the way that they left, that they left even. And that pride eventually gives birth to full-on disobedience and going to Moab in an attempt to escape God's discipline. So here they are now in Moab, living in full compromise before God. And because they are in full compromise, God disciplines them harshly. Let's be honest. This is not easy stuff. He disciplines them. They thought they could escape, but they couldn't. Naomi continues in verse 21. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity 
upon me. In other words, she's saying God has spoken against her ways through various means and pressures, negative means and pressures. This is the discipline of the Lord on her life. The question I want to ask is, what does it mean to be disciplined by God? Is it a trip to the principal's office? Is it, you know, is it a, a timeout? Is it punishment? Here's what the author of Hebrews says about discipline. Chapter 12. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Whatever you might say about God's discipline in our lives, the most crucial thing to remember is this. It is a mark of a son. Discipline is the mark of a son. And this is not just for the men, obviously. Sonship connotes access to God's inheritance and to his authority from the Father, which in Jesus is available to all of us, men, women. You know, just as we're all in this room, the bride of Christ, we are all sons of God. And discipline is the mark of a son. And I was at a restaurant not too long ago, and, 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 and I walk in, and there's a kid's birthday party happening, so I almost turned right around and walked back out. But, but I was hungry, so I stayed. It's like, I can do this. The kids look like they're about eight years old. And it's getting chaotic. Then all of a sudden, like, nowhere. Everything went from, like, five to 100 in terms of, like, energy and decibels. And the kids are running around and yelling and screaming. It's chaos. It's like, like a National Geographic uh, documentary, right? Like, this mom, I see she just rises out of nowhere. And she, like, makes her way through the sea of little humans. And, like, her hand out of nowhere, whoosh, like an eagle coming out of the sky to grab its prey, just grabs a wrist plucks this kid up, looks at him and says, stop, right now. <laughs> Look on the poor kid's face. He's like, but everyone else is doing it. And she looks right back at him and says, yeah, but you're not doing it. She puts him down. He got the message. I love that. And I can imagine her saying, yeah, all the other kids are doing it. I get that. They're running around like chickens, but they're not my kids. You're my kid. And you're going to do as I say because I love you and I want you to have friends in 15 years when you're an adult. <laughs> that mom is my hero. You know? That mom has the long game in mind. She has the long game in mind. The author of Hebrews reminds us that discipline is the mark of a beloved son. We are disciplined because we are deeply loved. Say this with me. God disciplines us because he loves us. Amen. Because he loves us. 
In verse 8, he writes, If you are left without discipline, in which we all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Growing up um, in my house, the culture in my house, it was loose, haphazard, you might say. We were loved in so many ways, but, but, but I remember we didn't have a lot of chores to do at home. And, you know, once in a while we'd be recruited if like a, like a guest was coming over, it was all hands on deck. And so that would happen every, you know, so often. But no regular chores. But then I would go over to my friend's house and, you know, when you visit different friends' homes, different cultures, different, different home cultures, house cultures, etc. And I remember in some of these homes, uh, when you visit, there was a lot of rules and structure and it struck me and, and I, was, I was alerted and lots of chores and I would go over and it wouldn't be playtime right away. Tommy would have to do his chores first. I remember thinking like, whoa. And so I'd be sitting on the couch just waiting for Tommy to finish his chores. And I'm thinking, I don't have chores at home to do. Wait, why don't I have chores at home to do? And, and I remember feeling a little jealous. <laughs> like, I want chores. You know, even as a young kid, I knew that the structure and, 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 and discipline was love. It was... It was love. Love was being instituted into this house. Does that make sense? So I go home and I say to my mom, why don't we have chores? No, I didn't do that. I, I was lacking love, but I wasn't crazy. So here's the point. Without discipline, we are illegitimate children and not sons according to Hebrews, according to the word. I love the Lord's discipline in my life. When I'm in it, it sucks. It's bitter. But afterwards, I see that he loves me. It's his love in my life. You know, it could be a, a word from Pastor Robert. He'll be like, hey, what, what were you saying in the sermon? Like, what was that? You know, or, or it could be a word from my wife. You know, her patience is patience is patience. And then the patience runs out and she lets me know, hey, enough of this. It could even be for my kids. Or a season of stretching, unexpected difficulties, challenges. King David writes in Psalm 139, Search me, O God. Search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the cry for discipline and leadership in his life, but really it's a cry for the love of a good father. I want to read this to you. Discipline is the Lord using pressure as the means to teach, correct, challenge, and shape us to be full members of his family. And when I say full, I don't mean before you're there, you arrive, that you're a partial member. We're all, right now, sons and daughters of the living God. But full in the sense that fully participating, living into your destiny. Fully involved in the conversation with the Lord on a day-to-day -day basis. The Lord disciplines us to bring us closer to him, closer at the table. 
God disciplines us because he desires us, not because he wants to destroy us. And in disciplining us, he is slowly removing everything that hinders love in us. Does that make sense? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11.32, But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, I know in this culture, in our culture today, these three words, judge, discipline, condemn, they feel similar to some of us. You know, even in meaning, we may conflate them, we may mash them up. At the very least, they feel similar. But, but these are three very different words. Paul is precise in the words he's using here. He's saying when we are judged by the Lord, meaning we are rightly assessed by God, we are disciplined meaning we are corrected and challenged and shaped and instructed so that we may not be condemned, meaning rejected, like the world. So condemnation is not discipline, and discipline is not judgment. These are three very different words, and it's important for us to know the difference as sons and daughters of God. And I know many, for many of us, this is a tough conversation because, because we were disciplined harshly by our parents. In fact, for many of you in this room, your experience in your home, you, could, you can't legitimately call it discipline. It was, it was maybe for some more just rage or for others, emotional abandonment, but not discipline. And goes without saying, we are imperfect parents. We have imperfect parents. We are imperfect parents. And, but many of us were disciplined in undisciplined ways, if you could put it that way. So this is a hard conversation, you know. And living in these homes, it drove us from them rather than towards them. We felt, we felt rejected. We felt condemned. But godly discipline, the opposite, it brings us closer. His discipline brings us closer. Discipline is him pulling our chair, you know, maybe it's halfway down the time. He's grabbing the chair. He's like, come on, come over here. Bringing us closer. It's an invitation to a new conversation with him. And that's what pressure does. Pressure changes the conversation around the dining table. Does it not for all of us? You lose a job. Our kids, something's going on with the kids. And you were talking about the Mets or the Knicks. You know, next, next, next minute you're talking about the portfolio or you know, the neighbor or mom. She's not doing well. The conversation, conversation changes. is illustrated for us in Revelation 3. I want, I want to take us to Revelation 3 here. Jesus is talking to the Laodicean church. He's rebuking them. He's like going at it with them. Of all the churches that he, that he addresses here in Revelation, these guys get it the worst. But, but there's a reversal at the end, and it's so cool. But, so he's rebuking them. He's telling them that they're lukewarm, 
You're neither hot nor cold. I'll spit you out of my mouth. Really, Jesus? He says, for you say I'm rich and have prospered. I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. Then he says this. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. What he's saying is he's knocking. And that knocking, it's an invitation to a conversation. That knock is discipline according to Revelation, according to verse 19. He doesn't walk away and discuss. Yeah, he said, listen, it's bad right now, you guys. Listen, I'd spit you out of my mouth if you're in my mouth right now. But if you let me in, if you respond to the knock, we can talk, we can eat. We can have this out. And what he's saying is he's speaking to a deep encounter and intimacy in his spirit through his word. And if we do this and overcome our compromise, the promise is that we will rule and reign with him. Sit with him on his throne as those who have conquered. Talk about upgrade. You went from being spittle in God's mouth, in Jesus' mouth, to ruling with him on his throne forever and ever. And that is why he won't give up on us because that is what's at stake. This is what's at stake for us. And Jesus knows it. We, in, we see in hindsight his wisdom, the patience in his ways. We see that he uses the least severe means to produce the greatest amount of love and fruit in our lives. This is how the Lord does it. The next question I want to ask is, how do you know you're being disciplined? Some of us are wondering right now, am I, am I under the discipline of the Lord? Truth is, because God is first and foremost the Father, and we are his kids, we are always being disciplined. It's constant. It, all of us right now are under the discipline of the Lord. So yes, you are being disciplined. So I think the question behind the question that some of us are asking is, how do I know if I'm living in compromise? How do I know if I'm living in sin? How do we know? Well, there are at least two ways to know. The first is this. By reading your Bible. With the help of the Holy Spirit, he'll reveal compromise and sin in our lives that he's calling us to repent of. He'll reveal areas that he's calling us out of and, and, and reveal to us areas that he's calling us into. And, and this is Psalm 139. This is doing what David did, saying, Lord, search me and know me. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. It's meditating before the Lord with the word open before you, your heart open before the Lord. Say, Father, just don't leave me in the darkness here. And so the word directs us. It's a, it's a light, the scriptures say. And another way, the second way to do this is to share your concerns, your, your suspicions, maybe your questions with the brother or sister you trust and you bring it to the community and they will help you discern whether or not you are in compromise. We need each other to know that. And sometimes we'll get called out. You know, like, I remember this one time this brother had a dream about me. I'm not going to go into details because you don't need to know the details. 
But if he called me and said, hey, listen, I had this dream about you, and man, it was spot on. Sometimes we get dreams. But the, the community, we need the community. And of course, you can always bring it to a pastor here at Beacon or any pastor that you trust, whether it be here or in, in another community. Those are two ways we can know if we are living in compromise. And again, discipline is a mark of a beloved child. There's not a hint of condemnation in divine discipline. There's not a whisper of rejection in divine discipline. It's quite the opposite. It's grabbing that chair and pulling it next to him. So the last question I want to ask here today is how should we respond to divine discipline? How should we respond? Hebrew 12 tells us this. It says, Don't, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Meaning, don't run away from it. Don't be like, I'm good. Take it seriously. But then he also says, nor be weary when reproved by him. Meaning, don't take it too hard either. Don't lose heart. Don't give up in the discipline. In other words, go with it. Endure it. It is shaping you. Stay humble. Reach for God. Get in the conversation with him. Repent of the sin and compromise as he reveals it to you. And that is the opposite of what Elimelech and Naomi initially did by fleeing into Moab, fleeing the discipline of the Lord. But Naomi, on the other hand, eventually, she finally submits. And we see this starting in verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people. In other words, the famine was over. So she's still in Moab. She's still in compromise. Naomi hears that God is moving again in Israel. And what I imagine is happening in her heart is she's starting to get hungry for the things of God again. Still in Moab. But that hunger is rising. She hears the good news. Even though she's still in Moab, she hears the good news. And a holy desire for God begins to rise in her. That's what I imagine. And it's like a prodigal son moment. You know, you know that story? The son is, he's eating the pig's food, and then he's like, bing, light bulb. He's like, wait a minute. My father's servants eat better than this. I can go back as a servant. At least I'll eat. And, and, and so I can imagine her thinking, I'll go back maybe in the mindset of a servant rather than a landowner like she used to be. Nevertheless, she believes it will be better for me back in Israel than being here in Moab. And this is where we see the true miracle of Naomi's story. It's right here. It's this. She believes even after all she's been through, all the compromise, all the sin, all the running away, all the death, that God's mercy is still available for her. Somewhere deep in her heart, she believes the God of Israel will have mercy on me still. Verse 7 says, so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Beloved, there is no sin in our lives that is greater than the mercy of God. 
This might be your second chance, your 200th chance. With God, it doesn't matter. If you repent, the scripture says, if you repent, you humble yourself and you surrender to him, there is no sin greater than his mercy. Some of us think it's too late for me. I'm too far gone. What you're really saying is my heart is bigger than his. My sin is bigger than his. He can't handle my sin. He can't handle my brokenness. You know what that is? That is pride talking. That is pride. God looks at us and he says, hey, listen, little buddy. My heart is so much bigger than yours. My heart is so much bigger than your sin. My mercy is so much bigger than your heart. So much bigger than your sin. If you would only come back to me in repentance, in agreement with me, in other words, then I will forgive you and restore you and heal you 100%. Isn't that good news? We can never outrun his mercy. Here's how the story ends. By the time we get to the fourth and final chapter of the book of Ruth, lots happen. Spoiler, Ruth gets remarried. She marries a landowner, Jewish landowner. His name is Boaz. He marries her. He redeems her by marrying her. He redeems Naomi. He redeems the family estate and gives Naomi her first grandson. The women begin to bless Naomi. The same women who are like, is that you, Naomi? They begin to bless her because God had given Naomi a family again. And it says this in verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. Obed means servant of the Lord. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. What David is this? That's King David. That's incredible. It's an incredible story. It's a dramatic reversal. We can almost forget who Naomi was at this point four chapters ago. You know, that she, that she was this forgotten widow living in a foreign land with nothing left. She was, in essence, a nobody. Almost everyone had forgotten about her. Except God. She went from the lowest. You couldn't get lower than Naomi. That's as low as you go. That's, that's the rock in the bottom. To becoming the grandmother of King David. And thereby in line to the king of kings. Jesus our Lord. God is in the business of redeeming lives. And he does it lovingly through discipline. Here's the thing, the discipline itself, it has a cost. I got permission to share this, this next story, and, and we'll end with this story. A couple of weeks ago during Fusion, Fusion is our, 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 our student ministry, our high school and junior high ministry. I've been serving with them for a few weeks now. It's an amazing team of leaders and, and students, just amazing, and and so we're going around this a uh, couple nights ago, uh, around in our group, sharing about where we are in our faith. And, and, and it's a heavy conversation. I was like, do we do this in Fusion every Friday? Like, it's a, it's, people are talking about eternity and where they would go if they were to die. You know. So we get to this one girl, this one high school student, young girl. She begins to share her story. And she, 
she talks about this time during mission training where they had set up all these uh, prayer stations around the room. And the students were to go around, stop at each station and pray. And she's telling us the story. And she gets to this one particular station. And there's this image of Jesus <clears throat> carrying his cross, bloody, beaten, bruised. And she's looking at it. And that's when it hits her that he had paid the ultimate price for her. Not just the church, not her family, not just for her friends or, or the pastors, but for her. And then she says this, she says, I realize in the grand scheme of things, I'm a nobody, but not to him. All the air in the room. That's the sermon right there. I wish I could give you back your 35 minutes. Because that's literally the sermon right there. In the grand scheme of things, I'm a nobody. But not to him. To him we are beloved sons and daughters. Beloved, is he knocking on your door today? Is there pressure and you don't know what's going on? He's trying to get your attention. He's inviting you into a conversation. And he's only doing that because he loves you as a son, as a daughter. He loves you and he wants you to live into the fullness of your destiny. He sees that, he has that long, you know, that mom, that long term. He doesn't just want us to have friends. He wants us to to rule and reign with him over nations for eternity, starting now. The training happens now, not when we get to heaven. It's happening right now. He has so much for you. If he were to give you a picture of what he has in mind for you, even five, ten years down the road, it would blow your mind. Because that's how generous and good our God is, our Father is. So I implore you, Say yes to him. Say yes to his discipline. And get in the conversation. Let's pray. And as I was preparing this message, it felt like the Lord impressed on me uh, me this this uh, this thought that there are people here today who grew up in that home where the discipline was pretty undisciplined to put it in a few words and that when we talk about discipline and the discipline of the Lord it's scary we're not quite sure how to feel about it and for a lot of us the the <laughs> The response is to run away. I feel like the Lord wants us to know that he's not like that. He's different. He's a good father. 
He's the Father who's bringing you in closer. There's no condemnation. There's no rejection. Yes, there's correction. There's teaching. There's shaping. There's even judgment in that he'll let you know what he thinks. The right assessment of our lives and what we're doing. But there is no condemnation, no rejection. He's doing it because he wants to bring us closer to him. And I feel like he's saying, I'm gentle. I'm gentle. I'm trustworthy. And I'm good. And you can say yes to me. So, Father, I just pray for those sons and daughters in this room who are carrying wounds. I just pray right now that you would minister to them, that you would touch them, that you would speak into their hearts your love, your affection, your tenderness, and that you would begin to reveal to them the goodness, the tenderness of your heart, of your love, and yes, your discipline. And if the Lord is knocking on your door today, I just want to give you a second to say yes to him. God, yes. I know it's bitter in the moment, but yes. Do what you will do and help me to respond to you with humility and a willingness to follow. There are things that he's calling you to repent of right now. I just want to give you a moment. Why wait? Do it now. Go before the Lord. God, you're so merciful, you're so gracious, and you love us. Thank you for paying the price to make us your sons and daughters. God, give us the grace to see you as you truly are and to continue to say yes to you and the things that you are calling us out of and calling us into. God, we love you. We thank you for this time of worship. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.